John chapter 3. In 1729, John Wesley and his brother Charles and some of their friends, they started a religious society called the Holy Club. Now, doesn't that sound like a club you really want to be a part of? Of the Holy Club. Well, these guys, they were honorable in every way. They were orthodox in their theology. They believed the Apostles' Creed. They believed the Nicene Creed. And they also believed in the 39 Articles of the Church of England. And they lived, these guys, lived an impeccable life. Uh, They met together several times each week trying to improve literature. Uh, They tried to perfect their timetable so that every single minute of every single day, of every single year, had an appointed duty. Um, they just, they always wanted to be doing something. And when they didn't, when they felt like they weren't doing enough, they began to visit the prisoners in the Oxford Castle. And when that wasn't enough, they founded a school in the very poorest section of the city, paying the teachers and clothing the children out of their own pockets. Uh, and when that wasn't enough, uh, they decided, well, we're going to get more and more religious. And so they t- attended Holy Communion each week, They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. They kept the canonical hours of prayer. They observed Saturday as the Sabbath, as well as Sunday, not to uh, tick off a Jew or a Gentile. Uh, They wanted to appease everybody. All with the hopes, they did all of this stuff with the hopes of earning their own righteousness through religious discipline. And yet the truth is, for John Wesley, it wasn't until at least nine years later, after working and working and working and working so hard to please God, that he actually came into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he wrote in his journal nine years later, he writes this. He said, I felt I finally did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins and he had saved me. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, this idea that religion saves. It's never been true. Let me repeat that. The idea that religion saves has never been true. And yet, it's one of the most common misconceptions in the world today. And yet, there's a world of difference between religion and redemption. Religion says, if I obey, God will love me. If I avoid this and avoid that, then and only then will God truly love me. And yet, redemption says, God does love you. God has loved you through the life, death, the burial, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Religion says it's about me. It's about my good works. It's about my efforts, what I've done to try to please God. Redemption says it's not about me. It's actually never been about you. It's about Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because he took our place, because he bore our sin, because he paid our penalty, and he died our death. You see the difference? You guys with me? Yeah, okay. Uh, There's a world of difference between religion and redemption. Well, in our text this morning... We're going to see a guy who was much like John Wesley, a man who was filled with religion, and then he has an encounter with the one who actually offers redemption. So John chapter 3. And before we get into the text, let me give you a little bit of background, just to bring you kind of up to speed about what's been going on at this point. Um, At this point, Jesus is around 30 years old, and it's very early on in his ministry, and he is slowly but surely convincing people of who he is. Um, It might surprise you to know that Jesus didn't just jump on the scene and command people to start worshiping. That's what we would do if we were him, isn't it? If, if you were Jesus, wouldn't you just jump on the scene and command everybody to start worshiping you? And yet, that's not what he does. What he does, though, is he slowly but surely calls people into relationship with him. And at this point, 
uh, in his ministry, there's probably only five disciples. There's Andrew and Peter, there's uh, John and Philip, and probably Nathaniel. And now the scene is, in today's passage, it's the Passover time. And it's the high point of the Jewish faith. And historians estimate that in and around Jerusalem, there are two and a half million people just kind of in and around Jerusalem. And it's not that big of a place. And so the hillsides would be covered with tents and makeshift living quarters. And everyone's there to celebrate and remember the Jews' deliverance from Egypt. Well, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and, and he goes right into the temple, into the heart of Judaism. In, in, uh, in Jesus' day, the heart of Judaism was centered in the temple. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he goes right into the temple, right into the heart of Judaism. And he starts there. And by the way, you'll find that Jesus always goes to the heart of who we are with God. And so he goes into the temple. And he sees that they had essentially turned the temple into a flea market with the buying and the selling of the animals for the sacrifices. And he looks at what's going on. And he says, what are you guys doing? What are you doing here? And he drives, out his, he drives out the animals. He declares his presence for the people of Israel. And then he announces that he has the authority to cleanse the temple. Now you got... You, you guys don't look excited about this. You, this is exciting news. He comes to the very heart of the Jewish people and he says, this temple, which you guys think is everything. It, you guys think that, the, that everything about God is centered in the temple. He says, this temple, I'm going to replace it with my own life. And they, if they would have heard this, they would have been shocked. They probably couldn't believe that he was making such a claim. And then he tells them that the temple itself is going to be destroyed and, and it's going to be centered around his life. And this, this is just shocking news for him. Well, in John chapter 3... Uh, a man by the name of Nicodemus comes. And he's a man who has been impressed with Jesus' miracles. And he comes to Jesus with a sincere willingness to actually learn from Jesus. And it's a story that you, I know you probably know well. Um, but I want us to look at it as if it was your first time looking into the account. Because for Nicodemus, it was his first encounter with the Lord Jesus. So John chapter 3, and once you're at John chapter 3, that's great. Um, but back up a couple verses because the story actually begins... In John chapter 2, verse 23. So just back up a couple verses. John 2, verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem, while Jesus was in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, and they believed in his name. Well, what were the, what were the miracles that Jesus was doing? Well, he was probably healing some people. Um, he was prob probably driving some demons out of people, this type of stuff. Um, and, and the miracles that he started doing started to attract the attention of many people. And they were really impressed with Jesus, even bringing some of them to this superficial faith in him, a faith that was based on the miracles, simply on the miracles, and not on the reality of who Christ was. They believed that he was a great healer. They believed that he was a great teacher. But they didn't necessarily believe that he was a great savior from sin. And so they had this kind of superficial faith in him, and that's all it was. Verse 24, But Jesus would not entrust himself to, the, to them, to these guys that said they believed him. He wouldn't entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need, he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus essentially didn't believe in their believing. He wouldn't entrust himself to them. For he knew that their faith wasn't a genuine faith. It wasn't a genuine commitment to Jesus as Lord. Uh, it was a commitment to the leader that they hoped that Jesus would be, a leader who would, who would throw out the Romans, a leader who would usher in a political kingdom, um, but not necessarily in the Savior that Jesus wanted, was, who Jesus was. Well, this is the backdrop 
to the story about Nicodemus. Jesus dealt with the heart of Judaism in the temple. And now one of Israel's top theologians comes to Jesus at night. And John weaves these stories together for a purpose. Uh, he wants us to, G- to see that Jesus has talked to the heart, uh, the heart of Israel, and now he's going to talk to the mind of Israel. And that's why John brings these, this story about right now. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, Nicodemus was one of these guys who was really impressed with Jesus' miracles. Let me give you a couple words uh, to help you remember Nicodemus. He was rich. He was loaded. Uh, Later on, after the crucifixion, um, we see Nicodemus using his great wealth to buy the the essentials to prepare Jesus for burial. Uh, Nicodemus was respected. He was a highly educated guy. The Pharisees themselves, all throughout Israel, were really respected. And Jesus calls Nicodemus the, the teacher of Israel. So he was really respected. And he was really religious, really religious. Uh, he was, Nicodemus was a part of the, the ruling class in, in kind of Jesus' day. He was a member of the Pharisees, a group that was known for splitting religious hairs. And also for clashing with Jesus quite a bit. Uh, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin. You guys know the Sanhedrin? The member of 70 guys, 70, the council of 70 men who ran the religious affairs of the nation and had religious jurisdiction over every, uh, every Jew in the nation. And from outward appearances, Nicodemus had a lot going for him. You looked at this guy and you thought, well, he's rich, he's respected, and he's really religious. He's got a lot going for him. And yet Jesus knew that there was something going on deeper within his soul. Jesus knew that Nicodemus wasn't content yeah, he had money. Uh, yeah, he had respect, and he had a lot, of, a lot of religious activity, and yet none of it satisfied his soul. Isn't that interesting? These three things that the world places so much importance on actually didn't satisfy his soul. And maybe like Nicodemus, you find yourself here this morning with deep pockets. Uh, maybe you're well-respected. Uh, maybe you've got a lot of religious activity in your past. And yet, maybe you're spiritually broke. This could actually be the case. And if this is, follow Nicodemus' example uh, of coming to Jesus to learn from him. So he comes to Jesus. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. And there's a lot of of thoughts on why he came to night. My guess is because he was a rabbi and it was Passover and he was busy during the day. He was teaching all day long. Uh, So he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. So he comes to Jesus and he tells him, he says, we know. We know that you, you've come from God. Notice the we. Who is the we? He said, we know you do this. Probably some other Pharisees who are convinced. Some of these other Pharisees also are convinced that Jesus is unique. That there's no one else like him. Um, by the way, let me ask you this question. Are you convinced that Jesus is unique? Um, because that's actually where genuine faith starts. Uh, maybe you haven't given your life to him yet. Um, Maybe you haven't been baptized in his name and you're not connected to his life yet. Um, But you need to know this is exactly where Nicodemus was. He was convinced of Jesus' uniqueness, amazed by his miracles, and yet confused about Jesus' real identity. And so he comes, he figures it's time for a little conversation. And so he comes to Jesus to find out more. And he says, we know, we know that you come from God because nobody could do the stuff you're doing if God wasn't actually with him. And you would think at this point, Jesus would start to tell the miracles or to engage him in a little bit of chit-chat. So, you know, these miracles are pretty cool. Uh, But that's not what he actually does. Look at what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, Jesus declares, I tell you, 
I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What in the world is Jesus talking about? This guy's talking about miracles, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And you know, the expression born again, it's become so overused in our culture that it's, it's kind of lost its meaning. It's become something of a joke in our culture. Uh, but what it means, uh, what this phrase born again actually means, it means a brand new kind of life that's being birthed out in another person's soul. And this is what Jesus shared with Nicodemus, that he must be born from above. Now, Nicodemus, remember, he is a Jewish theologian. Uh, he is, he's Jew all the way to the core, and this shatters the Jewish assumption that their racial identity, that their old birth, that their religious observance assured them a place in God's kingdom. This would have shocked Nicodemus, because he thought he had the corner on the kingdom of God just by being a Jew. Just simply by being Jewish, he thought, well, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm in God's kingdom no matter what. You see, it was widely taught in those days, uh, especially among the Jews, that since they descended from Abraham, they were automatically assured, uh, assured of heaven. In fact, some rabbis taught that Abraham stood watch at the gate of hell just to make sure that none of the Jews accidentally wandered in there by mistake. Um, this was widely taught. And so Je- when Jesus says, you're not going to get into the kingdom of God unless you're born from above, this is radical news, and, and it stuns Nicodemus. And look at verse 4. Nicodemus replies, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. You know, and I don't think this is sarcasm here. I think he's actually really confused. Well, what's Jesus actually talking about? You know, this idea of being born again. And so Jesus presses it home a little bit further. Look at verse 5. He answers him. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the word here, the word for wind and spirit, it's the same word in the Greek. It's the Greek word pneuma. Uh, it's a, and it's essentially the same word. And, and what Jesus is saying is just because you can't see the spirit visibly doesn't mean that the spirit's not there. And he's pointing out, what Jesus is pointing out here is that this new birth is the result of the spirit's sovereign, unpredictable activity, just like the wind. And again, he says you must be born of the spirit. And it's this real, genuine birth. But he's not talking about a physical birth, but of a spiritual birth. And I want you to notice that this spiritual birth... Just like your physical birth isn't something that you bring about. Did you bring about your physical birth? Did you? Maybe in Kentucky. Um, but not, no, not, not at all. You don't, bring about your spiritual, you don't bring about your physical birth. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that you don't make your spiritual birth happen either. And this is what's stripping Nicodemus' gears because he thought, and many people in America think, that you, you make your spiritual life happen. You get it done. You earn your way to God's, to God's grace. And, this is, and when he says this, this is the Spirit's work. It's not your work. It is stripping his gears. You see, Nicodemus' life has been about religious activity. You see, religion is something that humans prompt to try to reach God. Redemption, regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing another person into a relationship with, with Jesus is something that God prompts, not man. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you can't do it. 
God does it to you. And unless it happens to you, Nick, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. And I want you to grasp this. It's not something you do. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't clean up your, li- clean up your life enough to make it possible. You don't join a church to experience this new birth. It's something that God does for you. Completely on his end. He does it for you. And you might be wondering, well, how can I have this happen to me? How can I have the Lord actually do this in my life? Well, I hope you're wondering that question. And we'll get back to it in a second. Uh, so Jesus goes on. He says, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. Well, what's this about? Water and the Spirit. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions. Um, but I think given the context of Jesus' ministry, remember Jesus' ministry overlapped quite a bit with John the Baptizer's ministry. I'm, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is referring to John's work of, t- of uh, John's work of taking people down to the Jordan River and baptizing them in the water, signifying their repentance. Remember, John's message was a men- message of, re- of repentance. He was calling people into repentance. And John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one, one is coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And obviously, Nicodemus would have remembered what John the baptizer taught. And so uh, Jesus is telling him, Nicodemus, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you repent of your sins and you allow the Spirit to work in your life. And as he's telling him this, Nicodemus, in his mind, he's probably instantly thinking of Ezekiel 36. And I'm not going to make you turn there. But in Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 25 and 26, essentially, God says through Ezekiel, I'm going to wash you with water. And I'm going to put a a new heart inside of you. And I'm going to do a new work. I'm going to do a new work inside your soul. And you've got to imagine, and Nicodemus, his, his mind is reeling, and Jesus says, don't marvel at this. He says, I've been saying it to you. John the baptizer's been saying it to you. Ezekiel's been saying it to you. You need to be born again. You need to have the Holy Spirit regenerate your soul, Nicodemus, and you're not going to get there by way of religion. And you're not going to get there by way of, of rules. You need a miracle to happen on the inside of your heart. You must be reborn by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, Well, he says it again. He says, you need to be reborn of the Spirit. In verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can this be? How how could this possibly be? And notice that his his questions, Nicodemus' questions, keep getting shorter, uh, showing that he is completely confused. You guys ever talk with someone, um, and they're talking, and everything that they're saying goes right over the top of your head? Uh, I had a guy come out to my house a couple... um, We were building a house a couple years ago, and he was talking about how to build a house. And I am the worst possible person to talk to about building a house because I don't get anything about construction. And he's telling me, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. He could have been speaking in Russian. I I was just like, whatever, dude. Just going right over the top of my head. Uh, and, And at this point, you know, I asked a question, and it was just like, it was just short little questions. Okay, how much is this going to cost? Um, that's really my only question at this point. Each question that he kept talking, and my questions just became shorter or shorter. How long? Um, this type of stuff. And this, I'm completely confused because he, Jesus has just told this man some really difficult things. He's told him that all of his religion, all of his amazing Pharisaic study and discipline and law keeping is, is useless Uh, Everything that he's invested himself into and everything that he has taught others is incorrect and it's incomplete. And remember, Nicodemus is not a young guy. This is years and years. He's probably at least 60. Old guy. Not to offend you guys. Um, But he's an older guy. 
His whole life has been incorrect and, in, and incomplete. And this is, this is shattering news for him. He says, how can this be? In verse 10, Jesus goes on. He says, You're, you, he says how, you know, how can this be? And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Jesus says, you know, we speak of what we know. And who's the we? Probably Jesus and John the Baptist. Uh, because, again, their ministries are overlapping at this point. Also, Jesus says, you guys, you don't believe. And the you there, in the Greek, it's plural. Probably referring to, uh, to Nicodemus and the other Pharisees. Saying, you guys, you haven't believed our message. We've told it all the way through the prophets. Have spoken of the Messiah. Have spoken of me. And you guys have refused to believe it. Verse 12. He says, I've spoken to you. Of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Uh, he says, I've given you nice illustrations like the wind and the water and the baptism, and you don't believe me. If I told you the stuff about heaven, Nicodemus, the stuff that you really want to know about, I'd simply blow your mind. You'd never grasp it. Um, verse 13 No one has ever gone into the heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, you see that title there? It's a messianic title that Jesus uses of himself quite a bit because he knew he was the Messiah. And now Jesus has revealed a little bit more about his true identity to Nicodemus. And in light of this, in light of Jesus saying, I'm the Son of Man, uh, in light of this and in light of Jesus' teaching about being born from the water or born from above and in light of Ezekiel chapter 36 and in in light of John the Baptist saying, one's going to come up after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, You've got to imagine there are some dots getting connected in Nicodemus' mind about who he really is speaking to. And to nail his point home, uh, Jesus uses a story that was near and dear to Nicodemus' heart. Look at verse 14. Jesus goes, uh, well, look back at verse 13. He says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Remember, Son of Man equals Messiah. So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Well, what is this about? What is, do you guys remember the story? Do you remember the story out of Numbers 21? Anybody? If you do, nod your head up and down. If you don't, go side to side. Okay. This is a, you, this is a great story. Jot down this passage and take it home and read it over lunch today. Numbers chapter 21. Um... Starting in about verse 6, 5 or 6, uh, through 9. It's a classic, classic story in the Old Testament. And uh, what it is, I'll, I'll kind of just paraphrase the story. And by the way, Nicodemus, when he, said, when, he, when he said these words, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, instantly Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Remember, uh, the Pharisees and, and most of the Jews in that day had the Old Testament memorized memorized. How much of the Bible do you have memorized? They had the whole flipping Old Testament memorized. And so when he says, when he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, the Messiah must be lifted up, Nicodemus instantly flashed back to Numbers 21. Let me paraphrase the story for you. Uh, the Israelites had just experienced God's, God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt, and they had witnessed all the plagues. Remember the Ten Commandments? You guys seen the movie? 
Yeah? Okay. It's on every Easter. Uh, they had just experienced all the plagues. They had seen God's hand at work, and they get out into the desert. They get, you know, they get freed from the captivity. They get out into the desert, and they do exactly what we do when things don't go our way. We start grumbling against God, and we start grumbling against whoever the leader might be. And so the Lord decided, well, this is baloney, so I'm going to discipline these guys. And so the way that he disciplined the Israelites was he sent venomous snakes into their camp. And the snakes started biting people, and people started dying. Kind of a harsh discipline. Um, This is why I hate snakes, by the way. Numbers 21. Um, And so imagine if you're in that camp, and you're watching people, you've grumbled against the Lord, and you watch a snake bite somebody, and instantly they swell up and they die. What would you do? You would repent as quickly as possible, which is exactly what they did. The Israelites came to Moses. They repented of their sins. Of, of grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses. And in their act of repentance, the seeds for renewal were actually sown. And so Moses prayed for the people. And here's what the Lord told Moses to do. He told Moses to, uh, to make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And when the people look at the snake, after they've been bit, when they look at the snake and believe that God has the power to save them, they would be saved. Now, would you really do... I mean, tr- honestly... If, if this is what God said to do, would you do it? It sounds so hokey. Doesn't it sound hokey? I'm going to look at this snake, and I'm going to trust God, and God's going to save me. But I bet you after the first guy trusted God and he got saved, I bet you everybody started doing it. Uh, they, they just run into the snake, trusting God. They'd go to the snake, they'd look at it. And the point of it was um, that they simply had to trust in God, that and. It wasn't about their doing at all. Notice that the people weren't saved by doing anything. And this would have stuck out to Nicodemus at this point. But simply by looking to a bronze bronze serpent on a pole, they had to trust something as simple as looking at a a serpent on a pole was enough to save them. And Jesus sees the similarity between what God had Moses do and what God was about to have Jesus do. He would be lifted up on a pole as well. And those who fix their eyes upon Jesus, those who fix their gaze upon Jesus, who look to Jesus and trust in him, will be saved. And that's why Jesus brings out the the similarity between these two stories right here. When he goes on, verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world, classic passage that Billy Graham made famous. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we're going to stop there. The story doesn't end there, but we will. Um, one of the common questions that people ask after reading this passage is, what happened to Nicodemus? Uh, did he get saved? Will he be in heaven? I don't know. The scripture doesn't actually say. But there are two other places within John's gospel where we see Nicodemus again. Uh, one is in the latter part of John chapter 7. Write these down. If, you're, if, if you get bored over lunch and um, the conversation is not that stimulating, uh, go to these passages and read them. They're, they're good passages. John chapter 7, uh, verses 40 through 52. And then um, um, in John chapter 7, Jesus is before the chief priests and the Pharisees. And Nicodemus defends him, actually, which is kind of shocking because he is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. But he defends Jesus before these guys. And then we see him again in, uh, in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, where 
he buys the, the oils and the elements to prepare Jesus for burial uh, alongside Joseph of Arimathea. In both of these accounts, though, in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 19, uh, Nicodemus is almost like a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. Um, did Nicodemus ever really listen to the Lord, though? I have no idea. Better question to ask, though, is are you listening to the Lord? Are you listening to Jesus? Because Nicodemus is dead, his decision has been made. You're alive. Um, and the better question to ask is, am I listening to the Lord Jesus? Because he has spoken into my life, and I should listen. Um, or am I just here performing my religious activity for the week? A much better question to ask yourself, am I listening to Jesus? Let me close here. A couple things. Let me make three statements of what the gospel is, or what the gospel isn't, Three statements about what the gospel isn't, followed by what it is. Sometimes as you state what something, as you, you state what something isn't, uh, you get a clearer picture of what that thing actually is. And so let me make three statements about what the gospel isn't, followed by what it is. First, the gospel is not about reformation, but it is about regeneration. Reformation or reform is you trying by your own power to be good. And that's good. You, you're, you're trying to avoid this or you're trying to avoid that. And that's, that's a great goal. The problem is, it just doesn't work. Isn't this true? How many of you guys, every New Year's, write out New Year's resolutions? Raise your hands. What happens by about March 1st? Uh, all, you've broken all of them. Every year, I try to stop drinking Coke. I love Coca-Cola. It's the greatest drink in the world. Um, and every year, I tell myself, I'm... Breaking the habit of Coca-Cola. And I tell my wife, clear out the fridge. Uh, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm not giving in. And then someday it'll get hot. Mefford gets hot. And uh, especially, you know, in, in early February, we always have about two weeks of just blazing hot weather. And I'll drive by a 7-Eleven. And I'm like, 7-Eleven Coke, it's the best in the world. So I'll stop in. And I'll, I'll break it. And this is how, this is how reform or reformation works. Uh, you can be good. You just can't be good enough long enough. Is that not true? Well, regeneration is regeneration when you allow the Holy Spirit to renew you from the inside out by, putting, by allowing Jesus to put his life inside you, to have this new birth, this rebirth. When this happens, then and only then, do you have a real desire to live a life that pleases the Lord. So the gospel is not about reformation. It's not about you trying by your own power to be good, to be religious, to be Christ-like. It's not about that at all. It's about letting God reform you from the, or regenerate you from the inside out. Secondly, the gospel is not about being religious. That may shock some people in church. But the gospel is not about being religious, but it is about being rescued. Look at verse 17 in chapter 3. For God did not send his son into the world to, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And you see the word save there? In the Greek, I'm going to give you an English lesson. I know, Sunday morning. Uh, English lesson is great. In the Greek, it's a passive imperative, which means you have to allow somebody to save you. You don't save yourself is, what it, what is, is the, the key here. You don't save yourself. You have to allow somebody to actually save you. You have to be rescued. And God sent his son into the world to save those people in the world who had already rejected him. In the fall of Adam and Eve, they had already rejected him, and yet God said, they're still worth it. I'm going to send my son into the physical creation that I made to rescue him. And so the gospel is about being saved. It's completely about being rescued from something, from someone. 
It's about letting somebody save you. You've, you see, the deal is you've been, snake to, you've been snake bit by sin, and you're going to die. And the only way to be rescued from it is to look to Jesus, put your faith in Christ, and say, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong about everything. I trust you more than I trust myself. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Uh, and uh, Please save me. And apart from real faith in Jesus Christ, you are actually in danger. Uh, you've been snake bit by sin, the only way to get out of it is to trust in Jesus. Third thing, the gospel is not about churchiness. The gospel is not about churchiness, but it is all about Christ. And a huge world of difference between churchiness and Christ. Look at verse, well, let's look at verse 16. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, one of the hang-ups of people coming to genuine faith in Christ is that they see and they hear so many things that Christians have done, that people who claim Christ have done. Well, here's the good news. The gospel is not, not about the church, and it's not about the building or the people or the pews or some of the crazy things that Christians have done throughout the centuries. And believe me, pastors know about crazy things that happen in church. Uh, they, they, their emails are filled with them. Um, so... It's not about any of those things, though. It's not about the building, the church, or the people in the pews. But it is about, the gospel is about simple faith in Jesus. And that's it. That's it. It's about simple faith in Jesus Christ. You're saved the moment you give your life to him. And my advice is to give your life to him. It's really the best option going. There's no better thing. Uh, give your life to him. Well, how can I have this happen to me? Remember, we asked this question. How can I have this rebirth this renewal where God comes and puts his spirit inside of me. How can I have this happen to me? I hope you're asking that, that question. I had a girl, young lady, got done teaching the other day. Wednesday night, got done teaching. A girl comes up and she says, okay, I want this. What do I do? And I thought, you want what? And she says, I want this Jesus. I want this rebirth. So how do I do it? How do I give my life to him? Here's how you give your life to him. You believe in Jesus Christ. And here's how you believe in Jesus. You open your heart to him and you say, Lord, I repent of my sins. I repent of my sins. Would you please enter my soul? That's it. No other thing you have to do. You don't have to work. You don't have to uh, perform some religious activity. All you have to do is say, Lord, please enter my soul. Please take my life. I want to be yours. And I promise you if, you, if you say those words to the Lord, I promise you he will speak to your soul. And he'll say you're forgiven in your mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel is so simple, that you have made it simple for dumb people like us. When we, we try to, to make it something complicated, we try to make it about the church, we try to make it about religious discipline, we try to make it about our own effort, and yet it's not about any of those things, it's simply about putting our faith in Jesus Christ, and Father, we are so thankful that that's all it is, and that you save us the moment that we come to you. And Father, I pray for this church, for this body, that their impact in this community would continue to grow. That this message that you have promised from long ago would be the message that we take to the community. That uh, our lives can be renewed, rebirthed, simply by coming to you and living for you each day. We love you. We trust you more than we trust ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.